everybody, and welcome back to the PS Be Mindful podcast. This is episode three. Scarlett here, and today I'm so excited to be joined by a very special guest, Chinmayi Balasu. Now, Chinmayi has been a three times TEDx speaker. She is the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Simply Neuroscience, which reaches over 31,200 people globally. And she's also in her final year at Columbia University. In addition to numerous other things, the list goes on and on beyond what can I, I can expand here. So since this is an interview episode, um, it's only fitting that our mantra of the day be PS, ask questions. So first of all, let's get into what we're all here for, the questions. So hi, Chinmayi. To start off, um, maybe you can just tell us a bit more about your majors and your time at Columbia, um, specifically for our listeners out there who might not know a bit about what you study, which is uh, medical humanities, you said. Absolutely. And and thank you so much for the warm intro. Um, I'm Chinmaya. I was born and raised in Northern California and moved to the opposite coast, of course, for college at Columbia. Um, honestly, what I'm studying on paper is medical humanities and also a little bit of a mix of neuroepidemiology, but it's a whole, whole, whole myriad that's wider, wider, wider. Um, medical humanities, just to define, there is a few definitions that different sources have, but the best way that I like to summarize it is you think of medicine and you usually think of science, right? Physiology, you think of the human body, you think of anatomy, you think of healing. And um, medical humanities brings in, as the name implies, the humanities that intersect with medicine. So that could be from a preventative standpoint with public health. That could be from a understanding the human narrative side through narrative medicine, sociology, understanding cross-cultural intersections through anthropology, and maybe even looking at past bodies of literature through a comparative literature perspective. Um, there's also more of the visual arts, performing and ethics, everything kind of ties in. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting ocean to be swimming in. Um, and I think I'm only still at the tip of exploring that. That's awesome. It sounds like neuroscience has so many broad paths that you can take. And for any of our listeners out there who think they might be interested in the mental health or neuroscience route, maybe you can tell a little bit about how you got into it or what types of paths there are available. Absolutely. Honestly, when I got into college, I was thinking that I would be a pure neuroscience major. And then as you can tell, that didn't quite go through. Um, what kind of prompted the switch for me was that I honestly thought of neuroscience and public health and medical humanities and everything as being pretty separate. Um, I could see intersections, right? Once in a while, I could see really interesting neuro art exhibits that try to visualize the neuron in really fascinating ways for the public. There's this really immersive experience in New York called Life of a Neuron at Artec House that has floor to ceiling art installations that just wow. do that exact purpose. It's amazing. Highly recommend. <laughs> that sounds great. Oh my God. Absolutely. So things like that were honestly what I thought the humanities and neuroscience intersecting could be about. But with the public health intersection, I also, as a part of COVID, we mostly were talking about infectious diseases, right? But as I dove deeper, I also understood that public health was a lot beyond infectious diseases in the ID departments around the world. It was also a lot about thinking of diseases and their burden on population level outcomes. So for instance, 
what proportion of the population might be risk at stroke? And how can we prevent that? Is it because people might have certain lifestyle factors, certain genetic conditions, and all of those things that have this sort of broader perspective are public health. And that ties perfectly into neuroscience when we think of things coming out of the lab that we want to have impact a lot of people, right? So whether it's therapeutics, neurotechnologies, uh, different pharmaceutical things, um, anything and anything of the sorts, um, there is a sort of spectrum that ranges from individual impact through population impact. And I just loved seeing that there were those abilities to make broader wide-scale change by connecting the two together. So that's sort of how I intertwined the two, got into more of the medical humanities and of thinking about science outside of what it means to do science, um, and the epidemiology lens as well with more of these broader level thinking as well. Wow. And and going back to what you said about um, art too, that installation sounds amazing. I know there's a lot of cultural opportunities in New York as well. Um, but something that I've seen, especially just like scrolling through Instagram, has been a rise of art therapy as a form of mental health care and coping. And can we maybe go back to how the arts and culture can intersect with mental health and create a positive impact and if art therapy is really a thing so to speak absolutely also want to preface this by saying I'm not a professional therapist or a counselor <laughs> so this is just learnings over the years and reading um but whether it's honestly I have a personal example in terms of music therapy as a form of connection and um community for folks with dementia and Alzheimer's um, I used to be part of this community service project in high school where we interviewed different seniors in our community and we learned about the music from their childhood. And then we'd make them customized headsets with that music. And honestly, maybe we can't just by giving them a headset visualize everything that happens to them. But even just seeing that smile and seeing them sing and bob their head along with the music, I think is just the start of something that's a wonderful journey. That's music. We have live performers come in in hospital settings, right? Um, that's something that has demonstrated impacts with art as well, whether that's journaling or it can be, you know, even for the most unartistic person, even doodling and watercolor painting workshops. Um, all of these different things can be an outlet at the end of the day um, for folks maybe who are going through a really difficult time in their life in a hospital setting or caring for a loved one with a difficult condition. Um, it's a means of coping, and it's perhaps a means of exploring difficult themes that we don't usually think about, right? Like when you maybe have a family member who's um, going through something that um, as an immigrant, let's say, you kind of have these intersections of dealing with the new medical system and also maybe any cultural stigmas surrounding the brain and mental illness. Um, perhaps that can be a way of... Um, communicating and conveying with not just one's own self, but also fellow members of the team, the healthcare team or counseling team that can support you and your loved one. So, I mean, it definitely has demonstrated impacts. There's so much scientific literature out there that shows and speaks to that quantitative aspect, but even qualitatively, I think we hear so many anecdotes of whether it's listening to nice music on a walk or, you know, doodling and sketching and going to a really nice dance class or things like that. Um, have those sort of effects on us that are really wonderful. 
No, it definitely does. And I think that's been kind of a proven way like throughout time um, that I've seen people have coped with even just daily, you know, not even on the depression level, just daily sadness too, that can just really help to bring moments of joy and up our quality of life too. Um, Absolutely. And just as a little reminder here, segue uh, for our listeners, we do have a Zinnia Wellness Arts Gallery on our website and submissions are open to all. So if you're interested, you have any art, it can be people of any age, any level are welcome to submit and you're work is highly, highly likely to be featured on our website, you can just go ahead and email in any work from any medium to wellnesszinnia at gmail.com or visit our website. It'll be linked um, somewhere here on this podcast page and you can submit through there. But kind of going back to this topic of Instagram as well. So we've seen that spiritualism and all those types of posts just prove that spiritualism is on the rise with our generation. And Chinmay, how would you say that spiritualism can intersect with mental health and with neuroscience? Mm-hmm. That's a really that's a really interesting intersection. Um, I think if we if we think of just spirituality in general, um, it's it's a whole spectrum, right? Some people are very inclined with certain um, formal religious systems, and some people have more abstract ways of going about it. Um, I've last semester I actually took a class on spirituality and healthcare, and a lot of it was related to end of life things. But even in kind of daily practices, it's also these kind of connections with art therapies that we think of, of just as an outlet for the mind. That's different from our nine to five jobs or going to school and things like that. Um, I think it provides an outlet primarily, and also provides a sense of community for many folks. As in, there are like-minded folks who may be going through same things as me in our daily lives and you can come together um as for like kind of the social media aspect that you spoke about i think it's a point of access and uh, most people have social media these days especially younger folks so there's a lot more conversations happening on social media there's a lot more posts that raise awareness and kind of say hey you should check this out maybe you can be of some help um there's a lot of meditative and wellness practices nowadays that are that have gained so much attention um, there's always the influencers of course some of them should definitely be taken with a with a grain of salt. Um, but overall, um, there's a lot of these kind of com- complementary and unknown things to the at least the the biomedical science system that that could be interesting things to explore. Um, we're still, at least from the scientific lens, figuring out a lot of things. Right. And I think that's the beauty of neuroscience is that it's such a new science in kind of the scheme of things. And there's always more to investigate and more we don't know about our own minds. It's kind of scary in a way that we, you know, have, we're all humans, but we know so little about our own, what's going on inside of our own heads. Absolutely. Like when someone's meditating, something's going on in their brain, right? Exactly. And I remember actually seeing, I was reading a study a while back um, from this meditation master and they like hooked him up to I don't know if it was like a CAT scan or some sort of brain scan while he was meditating. And it actually showed up on the machine that there was a red dot in the back of his brain. Um, I'm not sure what cortex that would be. I'm a bit of a neuroscience newbie myself. That kind of showed that he was accessing a creative part of his brain just through meditation. So it's so interesting. There's so many different things that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But 
also on this topic of the past and um, past methods with, uh, with medical humanities, how can the past and studying it teach us about the mind today? Mm-hmm. Neuroscience is still a really, really young field. I mean, there's so much out there already, but it's still, the roots are quite ancient. I will say that. But the development as a field that we know today is still only a couple of decades young. Um, and so what does that mean? Some things from the past, um, I've kind of personally done a little bit of exploring of Ayurveda because of just cultural connections, um, being South Indian. And there's a lot of things that are in um, a lot of the literature from ancient times that, of course, language is a barrier to. But there's some things and some rituals that just pass down among families that we don't know why, right? It could be like, I remember my, my, um, my mother would always say like, don't take a, don't take a bath or a shower right after you eat as a child. And I haven't really dived into why that might be the case, but there's, there's just some sayings that pass down from generations to generations that the science is still kind of catching up with. Um, some, of course, like I said before, should be taken with a grain of salt. We don't know if they have scientific backing, right? But things from the past carry down culturally. So that's one thing to acknowledge. Um, one of the kind of mishaps of some scientists is that we tend to very, um, very much silo off things as in like, this is science, this is not science. Um, it's, it's mindful to be, uh, it's important to be mindful of the crossovers between the two which is what learning from the past from learning from the past can definitely teach us about. Um, there's also a lot of different ethical things to consider um, that comes to mind, right? In terms of making sure that the research that we do and the investigation that we do of the brain is ethical. Now with so many different neurotechnologies coming up, um, there's new guiding neuroethics principles that have been published by leading neuroscience governing bodies that say, hey, how do we secure your brain data? How do we make sure that you are fully informed of your rights? And how do we just control and make sure that all this is equitable for all people using these, right? And not use, not being used for harm. So that aspect of ethics and learning from a lot of Oh no, I think you froze I- to my no, what was the last thing you heard? What was the last thing you heard? Uh, I heard neuroethics and then it cut out, but um, no worries. I can all edit this out. <laughs> okay. Um, did I did I start talking about the neuroethics governing bodies? Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll just pretend that I'm starting from like a new sentence and then I'll come over <laughs> <right> there. <laughs> that works. Yeah, so in the case of neuroethics governing bodies, they're honestly all trying to put together these guidelines to protect our rights as humans and ensure that our brain data is safe, ensure that, that we're not being harmed by experimentation, and that all these different innovations carry out in an equitable manner. Um, another part that's really also important from looking to past to the future is a, a, a word and method of caution. Um, Something that you might have heard with scientists is that it's important to replicate studies and make sure that results are not just kind of like a a one shot. We might have found a miracle cure for cancer and instead ensuring that the results are demonstrated time after time, ensuring that we're not just kind of 
believing in science based on really flashy news headlines and big newspapers. Um, and this aspect of let's be more cautious rather than jumping to conclusions is, I think, something that we have all learned as a field from the past as well. So those are some things that I can think of off the top of my mind. No, that is really interesting. Like learning from the past, but like you said, taking it with a grain of salt for certain things. And then also with cultural connections, like recognizing that, you know, modern science can be combined with that in a way. And there's, of course, a lot more research that needs to go into that. But um, they're definitely not enemies like the news or other places often make it seem. Um, and with this too, how have you seen that empathy is often lacking in the medical realm? Chinmayin, on that topic, what are some ways that we can um, add more empathy into uh, medical science and neuroscience? Mm -hmm. So I'll just say from like a, we can talk from like a scientific lab perspective and also clinical right. perspective, right? And maybe even from like a community engagement perspective. With the sciences, um, there was this scientist that I met when I was in high school who was a wonderful, wonderful researcher and a wonderful mentor as well. But what I was really curious about was they were researching Alzheimer's. Um, they were working with rodent models. Um, but beyond that, like thinking about the scale of Alzheimer's, we just want to help people at the end of the day, right? Interestingly, this individual had actually not interacted with folks with Alzheimer's um, during their research career. So I it was interesting. I mean, his work was still with a really great heart, but to not see the human impact is a completely different story. So I'm not saying that he didn't have empathy, but maybe like that interpersonal dimension adding could have been an interesting addition to scientific empathy. So that's kind of a science lab story. And then in the, in the clinical space, doctors oftentimes when you go to really busy hospital centers, they are forced to be in and out of patient rooms. Like there's so many different patients coming in. They have to enter chart work. And we all hear these, you know, complaints on the news of physicians just have to do so much more interacting with their computers than patients these days. Unfortunately, many times because they're forced into it. That's how logistics are of the systems now. Um, now this call, obviously this podcast isn't a time for us to kind of revolutionize the electronic oh, health record and everything. <laughs> That's a yeah. big adventure. Um, but fields like narrative medicine are trying to help bring back that patient-physician relationship by centering on empathy and communication methods, even within that short period of time. It could be um, listening and active listening, especially. It could be um, inviting the patient to engage with these artistic forms that we've talked about before. So thinking about the extension of the doctor and patient outside of the clinical examination room in the waiting room, that's kind of an example of clinical empathy. Um, and if we think of the community engagement perspective, a lot of neurologists, I was just reading about a wonderful, um, wonderful woman from India this morning. Her name is Dr. Bindu Menon, and she has an initiative called Neurology on Wheels, where she's a neurologist by training and she and her team they go out into rural villages and set up a mobile clinic, basically, to provide free medical care and raise awareness. So I honestly really admired her work in terms of the, the, the sort of cultural empathy that is there and saying, perhaps there is some stigma in your community about seizures, epilepsy, about stroke, and these different neurological illnesses. And I'm not here to invalidate them off the, off the top of the bat, right? 
I'm here to sit down and tell you how we can help one another and how we can understand one another. It's not just a one directional conversation. So that aspect of humility and listening, once again, from the clinical space also goes into the community space. And that's an application of medicine to the field once again. But even if we are entrepreneurs doing patient interviews or participant interviews to develop a new neuroscience-related product, whether we are um, uh, leaders in the field who are um, trying to engage with stakeholders in any means, there is an aspect of humility and empathy that's super important when we are thinking about the brain because it is a it's a catalyst and a vehicle for so much um, so much of a, a a bubble of stigma, confusion, learning, curiosity, everything and everything in between. So the brain has this sort of unique role in the way that we communicate and have empathy um, at these multiple dimensions. So it's a nuanced topic for sure. Um, it's difficult to kind of sit down and tell people to have empathy. So there's a lot of growing conversations though, which is always interesting to tap into. No, exactly. And I think instead of looking at what we're lacking, it's more now we have the tools. We're you know in this very advanced time when we can think about empathy too. And we're more aware of mental health and how that can be affected in within medical settings. And now it's sort of how do we want to go forward in the future to make clinical care even better than it was in the past. And I think that there's a lot of talk about, you know, doctors and what doctors can do to be more empathetic. But also, I mean, doctors have been through a lot, even over COVID, we've seen like it's simply like you said, just logistics and um, the medical field in and of itself just demands so much. Um, but I think if we all can understand each other and come from a perspective of not bashing and wanting to tear down and being mad, but instead wanting to add more empathy and see things grow from a more positive perspective, I really think that's where change can happen. Um, and kind of with change and with cultural connections, like we've talked about, um, I was just doing some reading on Mental Health America uh, the other day, and I found some statistics about BIPOC communities, um, which are increasingly affected by mental health, with, for example, 23% of Indigenous Americans uh, reporting to have experienced a mental illness, and that compares to 17% of Black Americans and 15% of Latinx Americans who have been affected. And this is all very recent data, too. So with a lot of these really startling statistics on how mental health and how mental illness can impact BIPOC communities um, in terms of cultural intersections and neuroscience, uh, Chinmayi, how have you seen a lack of empathy in many minority communities? But also beyond that, what are some ways that we can kind of boost that and change the future and change these statistics? Mm -hmm. I think the lack of empathy most directly visualizes as lack of effective communication. Um, for a senior seminar last fall, um, my sort of capstone paper was on cross-cultural ethics among neuroscientists who were, there were two case studies. One was about trying to promote brain organ donation in Japan. And the second oh, wow. was about trying to, um, uh, working with the First Nations community in Canada uh, some members of whom were at risk for developing a certain form of neurodegeneration. So with those two case studies, I think some things that were difficult is language barriers, first of all, 
it's one thing for us to kind of sit down in the United States and say, we have all these guidelines, but when we even within our own communities, when we speak with um, non-English speakers or for folks who, for whom English might be a second language, there are things lost literally in translation. And there are things lost with kind of a cultural veil as well. Um, everyone refers to the Tuskegee experiment, right? As a source of really, really awful ethical, uh, unethical uh, practices and mistrust. And honestly, I think some people take it very lightly in terms of like, okay, well, why do, why don't black Americans trust science anymore these days? Trust is a very, very difficult thing to, to come back and rekindle once there is such injustice anywhere. Trust has um, to be earned. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Trust has to be earned and you need to have the most the most amazing thing, though, is having community members themselves be a part of that rekindling of trust. Um, it's not enough for kind of folks in the ivory tower to say, OK, folks, now we have, you know, the COVID vaccine ready and all these things ready. But it's it's a matter of engaging folks in the community. There were a lot of faith leaders, for instance, that really were instrumental in the COVID-19 vaccine outreach efforts, which was wonderful. And even beyond when we're encouraging people to go seek treatment for epilepsy, stroke, anything and beyond, mental illnesses as well. Um, there's a lot of these linguistic and cultural barriers we need to be mindful of as scientists and some have proposed that formal training in schools and universities is the way to go about it. There's some mixed feelings, of course. What can you learn from a simple class if you don't have the actual hands-on, in-the-ground practice and experiences? So there's an aspect of like, you need to go out and actually live in the field and do these things in the field to know. Um, it's an evolving conversation. The first step is recognizing that there is a serious gap. And the second step is having folks in leadership and in higher education, our mentors, who are willing to have those conversations with us as young learners, and also for us to be open to learning and actually pushing those boundaries. So it's not just kind of a, there is no one solution, unfortunately. It takes multiple people at different levels to to understand these sort of cultural competencies and and go from there and put that put that truly into action not just something that you get a certificate for exactly no that's true and just really being dedicated to the cause as well and remembering the mission because i think it's such a broad topic and it it obviously spans so many different groups and so many different people that oftentimes it can feel like well okay i just want to put that to the side and focus on what i can control because this problem is just too big, but we really all can contribute to the problem, but we can also all contribute to the solution as well. And I think it's really great to see how we're developing a consciousness for these things in neuroscience now and really putting our efforts towards those um, solutions for change. But we're reaching the end of our episode. And just as kind of an end note, I was hoping we could wrap it up with a way that our viewers, or our, I guess our listeners can um, interact a little bit more. So Chinmayi, what would you say is your top tip for how we can approach mental health with more empathy overall, just in our daily lives and go forth lessening the stigma, just a few simple things we can do both for ourselves and reaching beyond ourselves to others. I think it's really important to listen and learn outside of echo chambers on social media. We tend to sure. watch and listen and read from who we follow. And sometimes we don't venture outside of that. That's just the way algorithms work also. So part of it, we're not to blame for. But it's one thing when to read about, let's say, 
someone who is um, experiencing OCD. And it's one thing to actually be able to connect and, and directly speak with someone who has OCD and learn from their experiences. So for a lot of pre-med folks, let's say there's there's always the recommendation of go out and shadow a doctor. And there isn't as much of that recommendation for folks in other science fields, right? Like this, this kind of lab research example that I spoke about, um, what are the kind of expectations that we're setting up for ourselves in terms of making sure that we can visualize the human impact that we wanna do through our research or our advocacy or our learning. So it's important to kind of look outside of that echo chamber, try to break outside, learn from these really diverse sources of stories and research equally. And um, just always be open to challenging your misconceptions because we have a lot of those built in subconsciously as well, whether it's the way we were raised or the way that we were educated or the communities that we belong to geographically, any, any level. It's just super important to kind of go from the drawing board and learn from the ground up um, without any pre-existing notions. It's difficult to, it's difficult to put into action. I will, I will acknowledge that, but it, again, it's a, it's a journey, like we talked about. No, it for sure is. And even something that um, I've seen with Zinnia's mission being to empower teens to uplift one another, that's recognizing, you know, our own mental health and trying to take care of ourselves, but also leaning on other people too, because the responsibility doesn't just fall on us. It can be outside factors um, that are causing us to kind of struggle or to even just have daily moments of, anxiousness or sadness, but something that I've kind of seen is maybe people misusing mental health terms a little bit and saying, you know, when they just feel compelled to really organize something and maybe it's not diagnosed, Mm -hmm. they'll kind of say jokingly, oh, it's my OCD. Or to use the term anxiety for, you know, when they're just really stressed about an assignment, they'll say, oh, I have such bad anxiety. Um, And oftentimes that can kind of disempower or lessen the experiences of people who do have generalized anxiety disorder, who do have OCD um, and the like. So what would be kind of some things that you've seen with that um, and how we can sort of stop doing that in a way and empower other people and make mental health a part of the conversation? Because it's great that that's happening within our generation, but do it in a way that it's still sensitive and empowering to other people. Mm-hmm. I think the language that you mentioned is super important and it's, and it's difficult because it's so ingrained into the way that we speak, right? Is. Yeah. Um, like the R word until recent years was just used for anything oh. to refer, you know, to really just negative things in general. And now a lot of folks are trying to word, trying to avoid saying that's insane and in yeah. lieu of saying something like that's exciting or that's wild. Um, people say that's crazy. We try not to say that anymore. Um, so there's a lot of these kind of minor corrections that you have to switch your brain into. Um, so there's always kind of like being alert and being open to corrections. Um, sometimes, you know, you make mistake and that's fine and you learn from it. Um, but it's important to not be, you know, combative or defensive, but acknowledge. Um, so that's that's one aspect. Um, in terms of like the student well-being and everyone's well-being in general that I think about is one issue that's on the top of everyone's mind, burnout. Oh boy, oh, burnout is a big gosh. issue, right? Talk to so many people about this, especially with it being, you know, it's my senior year and I've talked to a lot of friends with college burnout. Oh, it's it's a doozy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in those cases, it's 
it's difficult to say no to oneself when we want to do everything in the world. And it's difficult to tell friends that, hey, I'm, I literally just cannot, I cannot, you know, relax as much as I work because I'm just so tired and I'm not having time to do these things and everything. It's such a complex situation. Um, there's a bit of keeping an eye out for our peers as well and saying if someone really needs the rest and the time off from things, that's good for them. Let's see how we can support one another. If someone needs a good boost and a friend to listen to once in a while, let's do that for one another. So it's, it's, we've been talking about those sort of community solutions. We all need to come together. And that's honestly like mental health is a, is a solo thing. A lot of people think it's yeah. your own well being, but no, it's all of our well being that ties into one another's. Exactly. And I think that we're finally starting to have these conversations, which is great. And like we were saying with the empathy topic, we're, society's moving in the right direction. And I think focusing on that positive um, and what we can do to elevate that positive is the most important thing. 100%. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Chinmayi. This brings us to the end of our episode three on PS Be Mindful. And I just wanted to thank you for your time, Chinmayi, and your amazing advice. I hope our listeners out there learned a lot. And I know I definitely learned a lot from um, just talking with you, honestly did. And Thank you so much to our Zinnia Wellness family out there for tuning in to PSB Mindful. Please be sure to follow our Instagram. It's at zinnia.wellness. And please be sure to visit our website, zinnia-wellness.org. And you can submit your art submissions there, like we were saying earlier. And we hope this served as your daily reminder to ask questions. So we'll see you next time. Bye. (laughs) 